the operation, warning it could lead to a new escalation in tensions. There have been mass rallies across France and widespread disruption to services on the sixth day of strikes against plans to reform the pension system. Hundreds of thousands of people joined in with the biggest crowd gathering in Paris. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has more. It's the sixth day of protests against the pension plan since mid-January, and once again the unions and the political left have been out in force. They're opposed to the notion of raising the pension age for a variety of reasons. Some say it's unnecessary, some say it's bad for the environment for people to be working and producing more. Many want the age brought not up, but down to 60. For all the noise, though, this campaign has so far made little dent on the government's plans. The EU's medicines regulator has said it's extremely concerned about plans to move Amsterdam's red light district to near its new headquarters. The European Medicines Agency said proposals would affect staff safety. The BBC's Anna Holligan reports. Amsterdam wants to move legal prostitution outside the city centre's famous red light district in response to complaints from residents about petty crime, drug dealing, rowdy and drunken behaviour. Two of the three proposed locations for the mega brothel are near the EMA's high-tech headquarters in a business district on the southern outskirts of the Dutch capital. In a statement, the EMA said if it went ahead, this would create safety, security and nuisance issues for staff and visiting delegates who often have to leave late in the evening. Finally, Sri Lanka's president says China has agreed to restructure its loans to the bankrupt island nation, clearing the way for an international monetary fund bailout. President Ranil Wickremesinghe's government has been working to repair Sri Lanka's finances and secure the IMF package for months. Sri Lanka defaulted on its 46 billion US dollar foreign debt last April. The news from RTHK. Cheers, Vicky. Good morning to you. It's Wednesday the 8th of March and this is James Ross. In the headlines, Fed Chair Jerome Powell tells US lawmakers overnight that interest rates are likely to rise more than previously expected. US stocks dropped on that news. Uh, China sets up a new regulatory body consolidating financial oversight. The mainland's exports to Russia surged almost 20% in the first two months of 2023. At the same time, China's chip imports slumped 26%. Japanese carmaker Nissan's credit rating has been cut to junk status by S&P. A Hong Kong cybersecurity watchdog reports a surge in local phishing incidents. And Hong Kong is the top Asian city for ultra-wealthy individuals, but still trails New York and London. Well, on this morning's show, we're joined by RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, along with Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Oldcroft. Plus, later on, we'll have Carolyn Wright taking a deep dive into how well the government is doing at helping develop Hong Kong's fintech sector with Eddie Yao, CEO of Artatech Fin. Then to round off the show, Barry will be back to bring us his view from the US. Well, don't forget, if you have any questions for our guests, you can email us at uh, moneytalk at rthk.hk or via our Facebook page, which is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3.
Well, Fed Chair Jerome Powell told U.S. lawmakers overnight that interest rates are likely to rise more than previously expected as they work to bring down inflation, which still remains above the central bank's 2% target. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be, to be higher than previously anticipated. If a totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. The dollar extended gains, stocks fell, and U.S. Treasury yields climbed after Mr. Powell's remarks. Mark Zandi, a chief economist at Moody's Analytics, gave his view on what those hikes could involve. I think uh, we're in store for at least a few more rate hikes here. Uh, I think expectations before today would be maybe two more rate hikes, a quarter point uh, for each hike. Now at least three, maybe four rate hikes. So instead of the federal funds rate, the key interest rate that the Fed controls kind of Settling just in uh, just north of five percent, it'll be probably closer to five and a half percent. That's my sense of putting numbers to what he said. But you know, in, uh, broadly speaking, he was as as uh, uh, people in the bond market say, quite hawkish, sending a pretty strong signal that uh, you know he thinks the Fed needs to do a lot more work here, raise rates more, keep them up for longer to rein in growth and, and quell inflation. U.S. lawmakers responded by uh, taking the head of the central bank to task with questions coming from all sides about the impact this may have on jobs. Here's the BBC's Samira Hussain. All of this puts Friday's jobs report and next week's inflation data into focus in terms of what the Fed will do at their next meeting later in the month. And uh, China is to set up a new regulatory body consolidating financial oversight. Analysts say the move is aimed at closing loopholes with multiple agencies monitoring different aspects of trillions of dollars worth of its financial services industry. The new financial regulator will replace the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission and brings supervision of the industry, including the security sector, into a body directly under the state council. Meanwhile, state leader Zhao Lei has urged local delegates to the NPC to contribute to the SAR's long-term prosperity and integration into the nation's development. They met on the sidelines of the NPC session. NPC deputy and finance sector lawmaker Ronick Chan said Hong Kong should utilize financial technology and leverage its status as an international finance center. We should have more innovation on our product shelf. For example, we have just uh, issued the tokenized green bond, which is the first of its kind, you know, around the world. I think we have to continue to uh, launch uh, similar products so that we can capture um, the first mover advantage. As, tem- as tensions continue to rise between Beijing and Washington, uh, Steve Vickers, uh, executive of a regional uh, political and corporate risk consultancy, warns there could be a continuing impact on foreign investment into the mainland. The tide has certainly changed in terms of Western investment, as it were, in, 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 uh, in the mainland. Rising interest rates, big problems with geopolitical uh, tensions, uh, and obviously a, a much weaker Chinese economy. Uh, have reshaped capital flows, at least into the Asia-Pacific and in particular uh, into China. 
China's exports and imports with Russia surged in the first two months of 2023 from a year earlier, according to customs data. Exports rose almost 20% as Beijing said it had to advance relations with its northern neighbour in an increasingly turbulent world. Those exports were worth a total of $15 billion. While China recorded shrinking demand from markets elsewhere, imports from Russia soared by 31% to $18.65 billion. Meanwhile, the uh, mainland's chip imports slumped. Uh, China imported 67.6 billion integrated circuits in January and February, uh, down 26% from last year. And British Airways announced yesterday that it will double the number of flights between Hong Kong and London starting at the end of the month. The number of flights will be increased to 14 starting from March the 26th. Well, let's have a quick look at the markets. It's starting on Wall Street and stocks dropping after that warning from Fed Chair Jerome Powell that it will raise rates more than expected to quash inflation if strong economic data persists. The Dow dropped 1.7% to 32,856. The S&P 500 down 1.5% to 3,986. And the Nasdaq down 1.3% to 11,530. Investors now see a greater chance of a half-point interest rate increase at the Fed's next meeting following Mr. Powell's appearance. And meanwhile, Spirit Airlines jumped 4.7% after the Justice Department filed a suit to block the company's takeover by JetBlue, citing antitrust concerns. JetBlue lost 2.9%. In Europe, markets fell as traders followed Fed Chair Jerome Powell's congressional testimony, the pan-European stock 600, uh, down 0.8% at 460.52 after trading flat for most of the session, as all sectors slid into the red. At the close, the FTSE 100 down a fraction at 7,919. Frankfurt's DAX 30 down 0.6% at 15,559. The Paris CAC 40 down half a percent at 7,339. Well, Hong Kong stocks closed in the red yesterday, reversing morning gains as investors nervously awaited Jerome Powell's testimony, uh, hoping for a better grasp of the bank's plans. The Hang Seng fell 0.3% to 20,534. The Shanghai Composite dropping 1.1% to 3,285, while the Shenzhen Comp- Composite down 2% to 2,108. The Nikkei 225 up 0.25% at 28,309, a three-month high. Uh, gainers led by iron and steel, mining and non-ferrous metal shares. To commodities, Brent crude currently trading down 3.7% at $82.97 a barrel, copper down 3% at $396.65 a pound, and spot gold flat at the moment at $1,813.45 an ounce. In the bond market, the US 10-year bond currently showing a yield of 3.96%. To currencies, the euro buying a dollar and five cents, the US dollar standing at 137.15 Japanese yen, uh, the pound uh, buying 9.29 Hong Kong dollars at the moment, and the yuan standing at 6.96 against the US dollar. Uh, Bitcoin currently at 22,024 US dollars. Looking at the markets at the moment, so the S&P ASX 200 is currently down almost 1% at 7,294. And Hang Seng futures looking that we might have 
a market open up around 1.3% down. It's time once again to welcome our guest to the studio. And on a Wednesday, as normal, we've got Stuart Oldcraft, uh, the Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. Uh, Stuart is with us every Wednesday. Stuart, welcome to the show. Can't hear Stuart at the moment for some reason. Not sure why that is. Uh, let's see whether we've got uh, Barry Wood with us. Uh, <laughs> Barry, are you there? I, I think you do. Yes, I am here. <laughs> That's good very, morning to you, James. Very good. Um, nice to have you on. And obviously, while we uh, wait for Stuart to join us, um, Jerome Powell's remarks overnight are the market uh, uh, moving uh, things, aren't they? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know, s- so much has happened in, in just a month. And... Um, Here's Stuart now. Stuart, are you with us now? I am, James. I thought you must must have heard me. Ah, thank you. Glad you're on in that case. uh, Barry heard me, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, the the sentiment, Barry, has been that uh, interest rates seem to be plateauing. But uh, with Jerome's statement overnight, things not looking quite so good. Well, that's true. I I really enjoyed watching all two-plus hours of his testimony. Because, um, you know, when you've got, what, 10 senators with very differing viewpoints asking pointed questions coming from all different perspectives, you know, that's quite a test. And I think uh, Jay Powell really handles that well. But you're right. The message is that there's a hawkish tone and clearly rates will be higher for longer. That's the message. That's why the stock market was down. And I think uh, three would be that um, there is an extra tight, extremely tight, was his word, labor market. And he sees that tight labor market as further impetus for why the Fed will continue to raise rates. It's interesting, Barry, because, I mean, he must have been listening to our show last week because we did talk about the fact that... (laughs) He was listening to you, Stuart. You were the one who said those rates were going to be high. (laughs) That's right, but um, I didn't want to mention that, but I'm glad you did. (laughs) But, uh, no, I mean, interest rates have got to go higher, and and I think um, far too often the markets widely underestimate where interest rates will go at the, at the, in the current mood. I think people are still thinking that there's a, there's a possibility of a reduction in interest rates sometime later this year. There's no chance of that as far as I can see. I think that, I mean, the, the, the economics of uh, the US plus those of Europe and most parts of the world are still not under control and, and interest rates for the central banks are just the best way and probably the only way they can control uh, economics and particularly inflation. Is it an effective tool, um, Barry, uh, Stuart? What, what do you think? Is it, is it really doing the job it's supposed to do? Well, it will do eventually. It just takes its time. Um, And the idea is to try and cool off a lot of speculation in the market and and to um, reduce the amount of spending that might otherwise occur. Uh, But it it, uh, will take more time. And and, unless you do it in one big swoop with a very big increase, which no one likes, then it has to be done in stages over a period of time. Now, Jerome Powell... Yeah, is... James... Go on, Barry, sorry. James, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, things have changed rather dramatically 
perhaps in the last two weeks. And, and that's correct. Powell made reference to the fact that the unemployment rate in the United States is at a 40 to 50 year low, 3.4%. Now, he wants that rate to come up, but he doesn't want to see a great deal of additional people lose their jobs. So you've got a stronger economy than expected. He does say that, you look, inflation is down two percentage points from its peak. We're making progress. But he called attention to historical evidence that suggests that if you stop, if a central bank stops a tightening process too soon, that leads to a fallback and, in fact, becomes entirely counterproductive. So, yeah, that was, uh, that's what the market played on today. I think Stewart's got it exactly right. Uh, there will be higher rates for longer. Uh, Powell mentioned that rates are up 4.5% uh, in just one year's time. And by the way, housing is the, in, is the sector most impacted. Mortgage interest rates here in the States have doubled just in the past year. Um, now, Jerome Powell is under some pressure, though, isn't he, politically? Democrats on the Senate committee were concerned that the Fed will go too far in tightening monetary policy and trigger a recession. Uh, Sherrod Brown, chair of the committee, said, quote, we cannot risk undermining one of the successes of our current economy. And Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic se senator from Massachusetts, accused Mr. Powell of, quote, gambling with people's lives, saying the Fed's inflation goals will put two million people out of work. I don't know. You know, he does seem to be uh, under a lot of pressure here, doesn't he, from, uh, from everybody? Well, I'll take that. Look, um, both Senator Brown from Ohio, Democrat, liberal, and Senator Warren from Massachusetts, they would say that. That's their constituency. And it's great that you have this kind of wide perspective of view. But when you've got an unemployment rate that is at a 40-year low, and you've got an economy doing better than had been predicted by everybody, then I think their arguments are relatively weak. Flexibility is, is probably what the Federal Reserve has most in its toolbox. If things, as those two senators suggest, get bad, they can reverse the policy. But I like <laughs> this rather rotund senator from Montana, Mr. Tester. He said, thank God we have an independent central bank. And I think he means it. It works. Well, I... Barry, Barry um, in the UK, there's a problem of uh, early retirement and a very large proportion, about 6 million people, have um, taken early retirement before age 65. And that has meant that there is a lot of people who are economically inactive, and that has been causing uh, problems as far as the UK is concerned, because it's not bringing enough money into the economy. Is there a similar situation going on in the US? Not in that way, Stuart, no. Look, we have distortions in the labor market, mm. but I think it's really because of all the money that was pumped out because of the COVID problem. Uh, yes, that problem exists, but not to the extent, you know, look, look at the debate in France. They don't want a retirement rate, uh, <laughs> yes. retirement age to go up over 64. Good heavens. You know what? All the data would suggest that the retirement age should be raised yes. to 70 or something. Yeah. But no, I think uh, I'm aware of the problem that you identify with the UK. It does exist in the States, but not to a very large extent.
So I guess the, the the problem that we're all worrying about is, you know, could any of this tip the um, the US into recession, which could uh, send the whole world into recession? Recession, and of course, it's not just uh, Jerome Powell and the interest rates. It's uh, also later on this year the the debt ceiling as well. And if that doesn't get raised in the US, that cause could cause commotion as well, couldn't it, Barry? Now, James, don't be a prophet of doom. <laughs> don't forget. Don't forget that about 80% of private sector uh, economists had predicted that the United States economy would be in recession in 2023. We may be, but it hasn't happened yet. And I I think a lot of the predictions about recession are um, too gloomy, frankly. I think there's a wish on the part of many global economists to see a recession in different places, but actually economies are much better at holding up against this than, than they're, they're given credit for. Now, China is to set up a new regulatory body uh, consolidating financial oversight. Analysts say the move is aimed at closing loopholes with multiple agencies monitoring different aspects of trillions of dollars worth of its financial services industry. What do you make of this, uh, Stuart? What's, uh, what's going on here? Well, um, given the scale of China's market and, and, uh, and the different uh, bodies involved in this, it probably is a very sensible move. Um, it, it's been reported that the scale of the, um, the oversight that this new regulatory body will have will be around 400 trillion renminbi. That's uh, 57 trillion U.S. dollars, just to put it into perspective. Quite a lot of money. Um, that's, uh, the, and, and the objective is that it will look at both the banking and insurance sector as well as uh, some other sectors. Now, there has been for the last four years or so um, a, a regulator that was just the um, CBIRC, um, China Banking and Insurance uh, Regulatory Corporation, and, and uh, and that has had some slow progress in, in getting its act together. Separately, entirely separately, the CSRC, the Chinese Securities uh, Regulator, um, will not be part of the new uh, super regulator, but will uh, take on um, more aspects of the securities industry. Now, one issue which has been um, concerning China for a long time is the extent of uh, both the bureaucracy that these um, commissions have, but also corruption as well. And so they do see these as ways in which, by changing the regulator, having a, a new super regulator, this will um, improve that issue considerably. Uh, the bureaucracy is an issue which probably will still take a long time to get rid of, and, and, and this is slow progress, frankly but uh, an improvement to the way it used to be. I wonder, does this reflect uh, tightening regulation around the world? You know, obviously in the Western world, in US, Europe, uh, regulation is tight and and, and getting tighter all all the time, Barry, isn't it? I mean, you know, there is a big focus on making sure that uh, people do what they're supposed to be doing, right? Well, that's true. But, uh, you know, the United States is a laggard, and uh, that's not altogether bad. For example... Uh, You know, we didn't have mobile telephones until about 20 years after Europe. And, um, you know, in a a sense, we've caught up and and probably leapfrogged. I mean, certainly Apple has. Uh, But to 
speak to your question about regulation of crypto, for example. We don't have anything yet. We don't have anything that is regulating the size of our tech companies uh, like the Europeans already have. So, uh, yes, regulation certainly is important. And Jay Powell spoke of that in his testimony today. You've got to have regulation, but uh, it's very hard to reach consensus. And that's what is supposed to happen in a Congress. Okay, let's turn to another story, slightly lighter one. Um, Hong Kong is the top Asian city for ultra-wealthy individuals. That according to a study by Altrata, which tracks the super-rich and puts Beijing into second spot with uh, Singapore third. To be ultra-wealthy, you need to be worth at least 30 million US dollars. Hong Kong has an estimated 15,000 such residents, but ranks third overall, trailing New York with almost 22,000 such individuals and London with almost 16,000 individuals. Doesn't mention Washington, uh, Barry, so you don't seem to be on the list. Um, <laughs> We're all a bunch of bureaucrats here. <laughs> what, is, what does this say uh, about life at the moment? You know, is, is money really concentrated in the hands of the super rich? You know, we, we talk a lot about Elon Musk, for instance, and, and, and others of his ilk. Uh, your thoughts on that, uh, Stuart? Well, uh, yes, Hong Kong has been a magnet for money for a very long time, and uh, a lot of that has come from China. So when you're sort of quoting the fact that Beijing isn't on the list, um, my guess is that Shanghai and or Beijing would be very close to making the top list. Well, Beijing but, is in, in second spot in Asia. Yeah, mm. so, but, but Hong Kong has attracted the money, mainly because it's been, a, it's been an open economy, it's been a free market, and, and people have been able to get all the banking and, uh, and um, investment services that they want and uh, in a way that they want it. And that's why it has done so well. And it's not um, unrealistic to presume that this is exactly the same reason why London and New York have done so well in, in, in attracting so many individuals with, with large amounts of money. Um, it helps as well in Hong Kong that we have a very low tax rate. And uh, as we know, most wealthy individuals uh, do look to find places where they can reduce the amount of taxes they pay. And so that's why Hong Kong has been another reason for, for it to be very attractive. To, 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 uh, and people have been able to make money here. You know, that's, that's the big thing. Um, people have been able to get companies listed on the stock exchange, whether they be local people or, main, or, or, or many of them are mainland Chinese who have moved their companies here or moved themselves here over mm. the previous years. And that's the way in which uh, a lot of that wealth has been created too. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Stuart Oldcroft. And also thank you very much to uh, Barry Wood. And Barry will be back a little bit later in the show to give us his view from the US. Let's have a quick look at the markets before we break for the news headlines. Uh, the S&P ASX 200 uh, currently down almost 1% at 7,294. The Kospi is down 1.2% at 2,434. Uh, the Nikkei 225 just down a fraction at the moment at 28,292. Hang Seng Futures looking for an open of around 1.3% down. Uh, so the weather mainly fine, warm during the day with a maximum temperature of around 25 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories, visibility relatively low at night, light to moderate easterly winds. 20 Celsius, 84% relative humidity. 
Still to come, Barry Wood will be back with a view from the US and Carolyn Wright will be joined by Eddie Yao, CEO of Arta TechFin, to get a CEO's view on the fintech landscape here in Hong Kong and what the next big disruptor to the traditional financial world might be. Now it's 8.30 and with the news headlines, here's Vicky. The White House says it supports a bipartisan bill in the U.S. Congress that will give President Biden new powers to ban the Chinese-owned app TikTok and other foreign technologies it believes could pose security threats. The White House National Security Advisor said it would help prevent certain foreign governments from exploiting technology services in a way that posed risks to sensitive data. Before the bill was published, Michael Beckerman, TikTok's head of public policy for the Americas, gave his view of the Senate's approach. The broad concerns of national security, the concerns over where does data go, the concerns over how algorithms work and how platforms work are not unique to TikTok. These are very broad issues that impact all Internet platforms, including some of the larger American Internet platforms as well. And so for us, we've been working on this for a number of years and we've devised a solution that protects user data and provides unprecedented levels of transparency and accountability around the code, around the algorithm. The UN Refugee Agency says it's profoundly concerned by new legislation in Britain that would detain and deport people arriving by boat to claim asylum. The UNHCR said the bill would deny protection to many asylum seekers, breach the UN Refugee Convention and undermine Britain's humanitarian tradition. Matt Saltmarsh is the spokesman for the agency. From what we've seen, it looks very much like an asylum ban. We're concerned about the impact that that will have on refugees and asylum seekers. We're also concerned about the impact that that will have as a signal to the rest of the world. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak insists the legislation is the only way to deter people making the journey by sea. There have been mass rallies across France and widespread disruption to services on the sixth day of strikes against plans to reform the pension system. Hundreds of thousands of people joined in with the biggest crowd gathering in Paris. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has the details. It's the sixth day of protests against the pension plan since mid-January, and once again the unions and the political left have been out in force. They're opposed to the notion of raising the pension age for a variety of reasons. Some say it's unnecessary, some say it's bad for the environment for people to be working and producing more. Many want the age brought not up, but down to 60. For all the noise, though, this campaign has so far made little dent on the government's plans. Israeli forces have killed at least six Palestinians in a raid on Jenin in the occupied West Bank. Israeli forces said one of the dead is a militant suspected of killing two Jewish settlers in Hawara last week. This report from the BBC's Yolande Nell. The Israeli military says it used shoulder-launched missiles as the wanted man barricaded himself inside a building. In a video message, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised the operation, saying it had eliminated the gunman who shot dead two brothers in their car in the village of Hawara. The suspect has been identified as a man of 49, who belonged to Hamas and had previously served time in an Israeli jail. Palestinian officials have condemned the Israeli operation, warning it could lead to a new escalation in tensions. The EU's medicines regulator has said it's extremely concerned about plans to move Amsterdam's red light district to near its new headquarters. The European Medicines Agency said the proposals would affect staff safety. The BBC's Anna Holligan reports. Amsterdam wants to move legal prostitution 
outside the city centre's famous red light district in response to complaints from residents about petty crime, drug dealing, rowdy and drunken behaviour. Two of the three proposed locations for the mega brothel are near the EMA's high-tech headquarters in a business district on the southern outskirts of the Dutch capital. In a statement, the EMA said if it went ahead, this would create safety, security and nuisance issues for staff and visiting delegates who often have to leave late in the evening. Sri Lanka's president says China has agreed to restructure its loans to the bankrupt island nation, clearing the way for an international monetary fund bailout. President Ranil Wickremesinghe's government has been working to repair Sri Lanka's finances and secure the IMF package for months. And U.S. stock markets closed lower after hawkish comments from the central bank. The head of the U.S. Federal Reserve said it would probably have to raise interest rates more than expected in response to what he called recent strong economic data. Jerome Powell said the U.S. central bank could also potentially increase the rate hikes if it thinks tougher measures are needed to control inflation. The news from RTHK. Cheers, Vicky. People are getting more... Welcome back to Money Talk. This is James Ross with you till 9 o'clock. In the headlines, as we just heard, Fed Chair Jerome Powell told U.S. lawmakers overnight that interest rates are likely to rise more than previously expected. U.S. stocks dropping on that news. Uh, China's to set up a new regulatory body consolidating financial oversight. Uh, China's exports to Russia surged almost 20% in the first two months of 2023. At the same time, the mainland's chip imports slumped 26%. Uh, Japanese carmaker Nissan credit rating has been cut to junk status by S&P. Hong Kong is now the top Asian city for ultra-wealthy individuals, but still trails New York and London. And a Hong Kong cybersecurity watchdog reports a surge in local phishing incidents. In 15 minutes or so, we'll be getting the view from the U.S. as we'll be rejoined by RTHK's international economics correspondent, uh, Barry Wood. And carmaker Nissan's credit rating, as I just said, has been cut to junk status by S&P, which says the Japanese automaker's earnings will remain weaker than previously assumed, uh, given the prospect of another tough year in 2023. S&P slashed Nissan's rating by one notch to BB plus from BBB minus, a move that placed it below investment grade. A cybersecurity watchdog says the number of phishing attacks in Hong Kong surpassed 10,000 for the first time in the latest quarter, totaling over 13,000 cases. Over 80% of the detected phishing websites uh, were related to credit cards. The Hong Kong Computer Emergency Response Team Coordination Center also warned that cybercriminals are using AI tools to launch these attacks. Alex Chan, a spokesperson for the center, told Ada Ao how the AI chatbot ChatGPT plays a part in phishing. Attacks. People are getting more handy to access these tools. It definitely lowers the, uh, the barriers to launch attacks. For example, writing a phishing email, somehow you just ask the questions. It can generate a very genuine and formal looking email. You can ask ChatGPT to generate the source code of malware or uh, program with malicious content. 
even though the ChatGPT includes some protection mechanisms, but we already find out cybercriminals have developed evasion methods uh, and shared in the dark market as a service. So we, we can see that these can definitely help the people without such uh, high advanced skills can obtain to those sources to launch attack. With all these accessibility with these technologies, we firmly believe it could definitely become a main trend on phishing. But how can we determine if a phishing email are actually generated by chatbots or generative AI, and how good are they? Yeah, I think the AI is really improving, and with more sample or more data is trained on the output, I would tell it's not easy to differentiate whether it's generated from machine or human. So I would say the fundamental mindset would be zero trust. So you don't trust anything sent from anyone. So if you receive an email, try to use another channel to validate. For example, what what I mentioned, just don't uh, believe an email to ask you to transfer money or provide some certain information without verifying identity. So to call them or verify through the official telephone number or hotline to make sure they are receiving from the legitimate source. ChatGPT definitely has tried to improve a lot. They they would try to see if there are some evasion methods and then they try to、uh, patch it and then to minimize the release of sensitive or、uh, illegal information. So I always think it is a, a racing game between the good guy between the bad guy. So some example about the evasion is they try to break the question in into pieces. For example, if you ask、uh, ChatGPT to generate the source code of a malware, it would definitely tell you it's not possible, it's not legal. But you do more searching about mechanism of the malware. For example, they may do step A, B, and C, and then you try to ask ChatGPT to give you the source code for step A, step B, step C. It can be able to generate some source code for you. You may not be able to get the whole weapon, but you decided to break into pieces, then you may be able to get through. And also, sometimes if you ask the question in a positive manner, it may help you to also get the answer that originally it was prohibited by the,、uh, the ChatGPT AI protection mechanism. Alex Chan from the Hong Kong Computer Emergency Response Team Coordination Center. Well, now Caroline Wright joins us to take a deep dive into what's happening to further develop the fintech sector here in Hong Kong, and to discuss what the next big disruptor in the financial world might be.、Uh, good morning, Caroline. Good morning, James. Yeah, I am joined by an expert in the area. He is Eddie Yao, the CEO of Arta Techfin. Morning, Eddie. Good morning, everyone. So let's kick off with you telling us a little bit about Arta Techfin, because you say you're using technology to transform the traditional finance industry. So tell us about that, and in particular, what's happening around digital assets. Well, thank you.、Um, Arta Techfin is a listed company in Hong Kong. We carry nine different financial licenses,、um, and in addition to the Doing it the traditional way, we actually use technology to tra- transform them into so-called a new way, and that's what we call blockchain-based finance. So Hong Kong's government has been very, very keen to promote the fintech sector、mm. and has been looking towards regulating the digital assets as well. So, give me your thoughts on how important being located in in Hong Kong is to you as a business. How how much is it helping you achieve your goals for your company? Oh, I think now is. The best time、um, to be in Hong Kong, and as you can see, people are moving to Hong Kong. And、um, interestingly, from even from Singapore, who have been more advanced, so-called in digital asset developments, now is the best time. Have, the government has done the right thing. So, what is it specifically that the government is doing that is helping?、Mm. 
Well, policy for sure. Um, when you run business, you want clarity. You want to know what the governments allow you to do or not to do. And the law is very clear. You can basically operate a digital asset business here. And not only that, they help you to operate. So there are talents programs, there are tax benefits, there are even funding in the futures. So, um, you know, that's why the world is moving here. So, yeah, you say they're talking about the, the, the benefits. They have been trying to persuade talent to come here. Mm. Have you been seeing that? Are, are people coming to Hong Kong specifically to work in the fintech sector? Well, uh, well, as a, as a private business, we are fighting for talents. <laughs> you know, interestingly, talents are hard to come by. So uh, with that, actually, to all the young people um, who wants to go into finance or technology, this is the perfect time to go in. And people will be fighting for you if the right skills are. And to accept what they do, um, what the government has done, and also as a private sector, what we have done is to kind of shop around the world and ask for partnerships. And so even after Tafin, for example, for us, we have built a few major partnerships uh, with global universities, uh, with some of the best fintech lab in the world to attract talents over here. So I, I did some research recently and some Hong Kong universities themselves are leading the way in teaching in blockchain. Mm. So what would you advise someone who wants to kind of take a career in the fintech sector looking at digital assets? What should they be studying? Mm. Well, um, I actually teach at some of the university as well, so as my colleagues. And um, for those universities that we have joined programs, um, we actually tell the, I mean, the 20 years old or 25, these days you, you still be in college in 25 sometimes, um, that, you know, learn how to programs, learn how to code, and particularly learn about cryptography and blockchains. And these are the skills that, that when I was young, it would be Excel, PowerPoints and words, you know, instead of just a telephone call, you know. So um, learn how to code um, and learn how to also understand finance because it's important. Ultimately, it's a paper business, it's a client business. So you're providing financial service. If you're in FinTech, uh, you're not just providing technology service. So you have to understand the financial part as well as how to apply it with technologies. Now, this is something that someone very recently said to me. A mm. lot of students come out of university with either the fin or the tech, hmm. but not the combo of the two. Yeah. Well, you need a job. That's, that's, why, that's, that's why you need a job. So go into a job um, while you're studying. Um, try to do something with your friends, create small business here and there. Um, you always want to fail and fail fast and learn from failure, so-called, which turns out to be probably the, the best building blocks for you to become successful. Okay, so yeah. you, you said already quite a bit about the, the plans the government is working on to help develop the sector. Mm. Is there anything more you feel they could be doing to really promote the industry? Well, the rules has to evolve. Um, it's almost like when you build your house and you start adding more decorations, you start changing your furniture and you start to you know, put in your studio or your stereo when, when, it's, when you like it. I think the current form of regulations is good enough for an industry to grow. But um, for the industry to be globally competitive, there has to be a merge between the so-called virtual asset or digital asset rules with the traditional financial rules. And um, this is what I think the SFC and the Hong Kong MA has done well. And the industry also have to help, um, for example, promoting you know, digital currencies such as um, we got CBDC, uh, central bank digital currencies. So you don't just have a paper bill anymore. You have a electronic bill um, that is called EHKD, for example. So to promote these kind of um, initiative, the government and the sector, the private sectors, have to jointly 
promote uh, what we call a uh, digital economy. So people really want to use it on, in, a, in their daily life. So um, I think that's where the, the rules have to change, the rules have to merge, um, have to evolve to make it happen. There's quite a lot of uh, pressure on crypto at the moment, isn't it? We've been talking about regulation earlier mm. on the show today, uh, Eddie. I mean, do you feel that pressure that, uh, you know, the, the, these currencies need to be regulated because otherwise they're mm. going to be a lot of problems going forward? Well, we took the view that regulation is good. Um, and that's why, as a firm, we are heavily or re- fully, almost fully regulated in Hong Kong um, from, from asset management, brokerage, um, investment banking, insurance brokerage even um, trustee license and money lending. So regulation is good because your customer will be protected. I think the spirit of regulation also is sometimes misunderstood because we want to make sure that money are transferred in a safe way. Um, when you receive money, you want to know who sent you the money. When you spend money, you want to know who you give it to. It's a very basic thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with regulation, but I think crypto industry has has been evolving as well. So, and just like what I just mentioned, in fact, um, even between the, the border base of digital currency, they're trying to merge with the traditional finance. For example, we are um, basically working on um, real estate tokenizations. For example, if you have a building um, that is lovely, where you want to pre-sell your, your income in the next three years, or you want to do some lending. Can you tokenize it? Of course you can tokenize it. In fact, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the capital market for the last 100 years, people have been securitizing it. They have been doing ABS, for example. So can we make it better? Yes, of course we can tokenize it. So this is a regulated product where you can apply blockchain and cryptography to tokenize it, to make it more efficient, to make it more rationalized, easier to trade, more transparent. So if regulation is applying the right way, I think it will benefit. And, and again, um, I think the, generally people like to associate cryptos or cryptocurrency with digital asset. Uh, we have four types, actually. So apart from cryptocurrency, the, the other three are security tokens, which is, which is backed by something with real asset. Um, and earlier I mentioned um, central government currencies, CBDC. Um, and NFT, for example, that would be the fourth type. So uh, I think cryptocurrency will come back. But in the meantime, we are working on others. Yeah, no, I can understand. There's been a lot of controversy around cryptocurrencies themselves over the yeah. last year. But the, these technologies are basically changing the traditional mm. financial products and allowing you to use them in a new format using mm. blockchain technology. What I'd like to hear from you, you're the expert in the field. Mm. What do you think the next big disruptor in the financial industry will be in terms of a digital product? You know how this digital asset thing would change us? is it'll change our experience in life. You probably will wake up every day wanting to use it because it helps you to save time. It helps you to make your life easier. And specifically, um, interestingly, identifying yourself. That's what we call know your clients, KYC. When you go to any institutions, you got to identify yourself. And that's not an easy task. You know, got to show your ID, your address proof. And now that, guess what? Twitter will ask you to pay them $12 per month to identify themselves just on Twitter, um, to give yourself what we call centralized ID, centralized identity. So Twitter will know who you are, but not Facebook, unfortunately. So you have to pay Facebook again, another $12. That's that's a lot, it, it should add up. So if you can bring in a technology that gives you a one-stop digital identity of yourself so that you can you know, 
go to any platforms and the platform can trust you, I think that's what blockchain and cryptography can make you, make your life difference. Okay, so yeah. watch out for Digital ID coming your way soon. Thank you so much for joining me today, Eddie. That's Eddie Yao, the CEO of Arta TechFin. And thank you, Caroline. years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, LTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Very good morning. It's James Ross with Money Talk. It's nine minutes to nine, and we're going to cross back to Washington now uh, to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics uh, correspondent. Uh, welcome back, Barry. Well, Tesla has cut prices for its electric cars again as it tries to boost sales and compete with rival firms. Uh, the reductions, worth several thousand pounds depending on the market and model, have been applied to cars listed for sale on the company's website in the UK, US, and elsewhere. I mean, uh, and Elon Musk story continuing, uh, Barry. Yes, yes, for sure. Yes, it's continuing. And um, look, I listened to the Tesla earnings call. It was uh, last week and it was quite impressive. First of all, it wasn't all Elon Musk. He had 17 of his top executives on the platform with him talking to investors in Austin, Texas. And by the way, one of them was... Tom Zhu, who had run the Shanghai operation and now is in charge of global manufacturing for all of Tesla. That's their four plants, Austin, Texas, Fremont, California, Berlin, Germany and Shanghai. Yeah, that was uh, it was a big deal. And um, Twitter's finances apparently also improving after some big cuts. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk saying the company is recovering after a sharp drop in ad sales, but its revenue is still far short of its level in 2021 before he took over. Uh, Elon said um, Twitter recovering after seeing a 50% decline in ad revenue, making one of his first public disclosures about the state of the company since he acquired it last year. Um, uh, another chapter in the, uh, the Musk story. Yeah, that's true, James. Look, um, I think listeners are aware this is a very wealthy man. He's worth $191 billion, number two in the world after the Bernard Arnault from Paris and ahead of Bill Gates and ahead of Jeff Bezos. But uh, Twitter has been a real problem and he has slashed operating costs. He slashed the workforce. It's still a mess, and I think listeners who are Twitter users, and I know you have Twitter in Hong Kong, are finding it frustrating. He's also doing a, a pay service now, but he is optimistic that they're going to show a profit in the second half of this year, so we shall see.
What are the contrasts between these two companies, Tesla and uh, Twitter? On the one hand, you know, Tesla seems to be uh, a more solid operation and obviously, uh, you know, worth a huge amount of money, although, you know, these worrying cuts perhaps in, in prices, you know, are uh, showing something else. Uh, but Twitter does seem to have been pretty shaky in the last year or so. Um, Absolutely. No, that is a big difference in these companies. First of all, I don't think Musk wanted to get into Twitter. He was forced into it. Uh, you know, there was all that speculation well over a year ago. And then the court said, you made a commitment, so now you've got to do it. $44 billion, what's that to him? Uh, San Francisco headquarters. And he's become fiercely controversial because he's perceived by Silicon Valley people now as a right winger because he attacks the traditional way of running Twitter and other companies. As to Tesla, that makes a lot of money. And when you mention the price cuts of these two, they only have four models. These are the two oldest models, the Model S and the Model X. It builds market share. And already electric cars, not Tesla, but electric cars in the United States have a 10% market share and Tesla believes they're going to cut costs by 50%. So I think they're setting the standard for auto manufacturing in the States. And by the way, the Shanghai plant was a huge success. Listeners may be aware that that is the only wholly owned manufacturing facility owned by a foreign entity in China. Mm. And that was part of the deal when he came into Shanghai. And that plant, from the time ground was broken near the airport to the time of production, was nine months. Now, Tom Zhu, the, the Chinese-American who is in charge of global manufacturing, says the new plant they're going to build in Mexico, he's given them the challenge, can you do what the Chinese did? <laughs> the Mexicans say yes. We'll see. We'll see, I think. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, t turning to another form of transport, um, this mega airline merger has hit some turbulence. Uh, regulators looking to block JetBlue's $3.8 billion bid to buy Spirit Airways and think there's no other way to address their competition concerns than by blocking it. What's, what's the word out there, uh, Barry? What are you hearing about well, this? Well, I think it's thing? dead. It's not going to happen. Look, we've got four big carriers in the United States. We've got Delta, American, United, and Southwest. And Southwest is an interesting story because they don't allow their fares to be aggregated. You have to deal with them directly, and they've had some problems. So that's 80% of the travel market in the United States. So we're talking about the rest, this 20%. This is low-cost carriers trying to merge. Uh, JetBlue is based in New York City. It's much bigger than Spirit, and it was going to, you know, merge two ultra-low-cost carriers. And the Justice Department, the Attorney General, says, no, hold it. It's going to raise fares, and it's going to reduce consumer choice. So we'll see. The, there aren't very many of these small airlines left. There's Frontier and a couple others, but probably now Spirit, which is based down in Miami, will look for another partner. 
Uh, turning to one final story before we wrap it up, um, Joe Biden's budget is likely to propose a tax increase to bolster Medicare. Uh, the president's plan targets Americans earning more than $400,000 a year in an attempt to increase the program's solvency by 25 years. This is a, a bit of a, a tentpole in his policies, really, to, to prop up Medicare, right? I think you're right, James, and, and probably it's going to have a favorable response. Look, the United States spends on the government level about $6 trillion per year. That's coming up to the next year. And the revenue coming in is $5 trillion. So that leaves over a trillion dollar deficit. Now, admittedly, that deficit is only 5.5% of gross domestic product. It had been as high as 15% in 2020 at the height of the COVID problem and 12% in, in 2021. I think President Biden's budget is going to be favorably received, but when he talks about this saves Medicare, those are kind of tricks because we have a unified budget structure. So if you raise taxes on the rich, and he says he'll do that, anybody over $400,000 of personal income has to pay more, that's fine. But that just goes into the general budget and it takes that 5.5% deficit I mentioned and, and reduces it. The president can say that saves Medicare, but probably if you look closely, that's not necessarily the case. Well, we wait with interest to see what uh, happens there. Barry, thanks as ever. Uh, have a, a great night and we'll speak to you this time on Money Talk uh, next Wednesday. Thanks very much. Uh, let's have a quick look at the markets before we leave you. Uh, currently, the S&P ASX 200 is down three quarters of 1% at 7,310. Uh, the Cosby is down 1.2% to 2,433. The Nikkei up a fraction, uh, almost 0.2% at 28,000. 351. Uh, Hang Seng Futures looking to open 1.3% down. On tomorrow's show, Andrew Work will be joined by wealth in investment strategist Enzio von Feil and Frederick Chu, Managing Director of Magnum Research. Plus, we'll look at strategies for improving diversity and inclusion in the workplace with Andrea Randall, partner at law firm RPC. Back Chat is with you after the news with Janice and Jenny Lam. Uh, this is James Ross. I'll join you on Friday for Monday. Money Talk.